Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Kithcart. Welcome to the Champions of Risk podcast, where we examine the many aspects of risk so we can all face uncertainty with more strength and courage together. Today's guest is Jen Swanson, CEO of Jen Swanson Consulting. She works with clients to develop, launch, and optimize digital products and initiatives through effective development and management of product portfolios. By the end of this podcast, we are all going to know what that exactly means. (laughs) She is a versatile champion of multiple disciplines and deploys both EQ and IQ in working with teams on product innovation and digital transformation. Jen's career has included roles in education with Capella University, digital marketing at children's hospitals and clinics, and digital product management at Optum. Jen, welcome to the Champions of Risk podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I am thrilled to have you. I just know that this is going to be an interesting conversation. So you work with companies with digital transformation. Mm-hmm. I want to kick this off with hearing about your career transformation and what's led you to this point. Well, it has been a long and winding road. That is for sure. I always talk about the fact that I took the most securitous route to finding what I was good at than uh, just about anyone. Part of it is, is that I have a very wide variety of interests, right? And so, and I also, um, um, somewhat of a, um, a nomad in that I like to try a lot of different things. And so my career has definitely been to suit. So if we cast our memory back, I uh, actually started out my professional life with a, a master's in higher education administration. And I worked for traditional higher ed. I was I was a live-in hall director for my very first job out of grad oh, school. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I lived... Um, I lived in Drew Hall at Hamlin University. So shout out to all the, uh, I don't even remember what Hamlin's mascot is, but there's probably, you probably have some listeners who went to Hamlin and maybe some that lived in Drew Hall. I lived in Drew Hall in the early 2000s, late 90s, something like that. And um, and managed the resident assistants there and like all of the residents. It was very, it was a very interesting way to start my career. But I, I started out in in student activities Um, campus administration. And I really thought I was going to stay in university administration for my entire career. I had goals when I was in graduate school to be president of a university. And like, I don't think I had any freaking clue what that really meant. But I love the idea of like running, like running a large institution with like lots of intellectual activity and student development and growth, right? I was really engaged in the idea of like what happens to the human brain between the ages of like 18 and 22 when most people go to college, certainly not everyone. It was actually representative of my very narrow view of the world at the point because I believed it to be all about 18 to 22 year olds, never mind all of the people who go to school outside of the 18 to 22 year old age, but I digress. Did you think, okay, like how smart did you think you were at that particular point? Oh my God, I thought I knew everything, right? I thought I knew everything. I mean, I probably had slightly more like, realism about my limitations than I did when I was say like 14. I have a preteen who is entering the age of uh, him knowing way more about the world than you know, at least from his point of view, how much smarter he is than his dad and I. Yeah. So like, you know, that, like, I probably came down from that high slightly, but I still thought I knew a lot. Everything. Yes. <laughs> like, I wish I actually knew what I know now back when I thought I knew it all. Right. Because <laughs> exactly. now I just realized there's so much I don't know. Right. Right. So anyway, so I started my career there and 
It was a, like, it was an all encompassing job. It was a 24 hour, hour a day job. I mean, I lived where I worked and lots of people say they live at work. I actually lived at work. I had an apartment in the residence hall and I walked like 15 steps to my office and like at two o'clock in the morning when the, you know, what went down, <laughs> I was on call and it was, you know, it was an all encompassing job and I did not like that. I, what I figured out um, about myself was that number one, I needed a little bit more boundaries than that. I also got super frustrated with the pace of change. And that's not just about, like, that's not a dig on Hamlin, higher education in general. And I worked at the University of Minnesota and but the pace of change was really, really frustrating to me as I learned more about myself, right, in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And as I figured out that what I needed, what I was fed by new ideas and by innovation and by looking at something and going, yeah, that's great. I don't want to run it. I want to go over here and build this other thing right? That's super interesting to me. That, you know, we all go through that sort of period of growth and self-realization in our 20s. And so that took me away from higher education, at least traditional higher education. What happened was, is I, through a series of different events, found myself at Capella, which was a great blend between what I knew professionally about being an educator, right? And what role, what the mechanisms and sort of rubrics and sort of pedagogy of education looks like and growth and development and university administration, which I had learned through my master's program and this great new world of innovation and technology and the idea that you could run a quality education experience in a for-profit environment. And that was super exciting. And they took a chance on me. And I got in there and they hired me as, uh, I, I was working at the Alumni Association at the University of Minnesota. Capella hired me as their very, well, I don't know that I was the first alumni director, but I was the first like full-time alumni director, right? That hi they hired for that role. It had been a an add-on to other people's jobs, but it was the first full-time role. And I went in and I was like, great, I'm going to do this for like six months. And then I want to move around the company. Okay. I had worked there for eight years and I had... I think I figured five different jobs in eight years. An alumni director followed me around for all but I think one of those. Uh -huh. So like it became my add-on, even though they hired me for it, like it became my add-on, which was totally fine. What I loved about Capella was that they had a, an innovator's mindset. They had, when I joined them, they had just gone public. So they still, and they still very much had that startup DNA in them, which was hire smart people who have good general skills and can think critically and in our future oriented and have a, you know, have a orientation towards possibility. And then together we'll figure the rest of it out. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there was not, it was not about, well, gee, you haven't done this before, so you can't possibly do it now. It was very much in the, like, I don't know, put a bunch of smart people in the room and we'll figure it out. Wow. Had you, ever, was, had you ever been in that kind of environment before? No, no. it was, it was mind blowing. It was mind blowing. And that's, I think the only reason I lasted eight years because I don't have that kind of staying power in any other job I've ever had, which is I get in, I learn as much as I go super deep. I just immerse myself in it. I do what I came to do. And then I'm like, I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> Next. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I think that's why like in the, you know, in the eight years that I was there, I had five jobs. So I started as the alumni director. I was an events leader. I like an events marketer, basically like trade shows and events. So I did events marketing. I led the brand advocacy team and started our word of mouth marketing program. 
and built like a whole technology platform to manage referrals, right? Led the referral marketing program. Um, I led the career center. I managed a group of career counselors that serve students and alumni. And then I led uh, an, in a, or, uh, an operations team that did like systems configuration. I had three teams, systems configuration, workforce planning, and audit and compliance, <laughs> which are like the three most random groups, except for that kind of made sense at the time. So like, if you look at that on my resume, like that doesn't make any sense, but I can tell you exactly what the connective tissue was between all of them, right? Yeah. And what I love about it was that I got that per portfolio of experiences, but never had to leave my company, right? I never had to leave Capella. And that was really kind of amazing. When you think back on that time, now I'm jumping ahead a little bit and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll connect more dots here, but now you're an entrepreneur, you, you started your own business. When you think back to that time in, in Capella where you had all of those different experiences, how do you think that started to shape you and prepare you to create your own company? Well, it gave me some comfort in the idea of a portfolio of experiences rather than like, I am a marketer. Or I am, you know, a data scientist, or I am a doctor, right? Like it made me, it was uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable um, to have to explain it to people who didn't understand it. And there were frankly, lots of people who didn't understand it. I just looked like a job jumper to a lot of people. I don't know. Right? I think, you know, like event management and compliance go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. Why not? But I do think like, it was hard to explain it to some people. And I think where I had to get was this idea of that's fine. If you don't get it, then you're not my people. Right? Uh -huh. Like, it just made me realize that like, I understood it. And it made sense to me. And I knew what I was doing with that portfolio of experiences. And yeah. if you didn't see it, then you weren't my people. I love that confidence that you just shared there, Jen, of like, instead of trying to conform and trying to, you know, help people bring along with it, how did you get centered inside of yourself where you're just, where you're able to say that like, hey, I'm good with this. This makes total sense to me. I like who I am. Yeah. I mean, some of it is just plain old fashioned thick headedness. And, <laughs> um, right. Like, I think that's part of my DNA. It's like, fine. You don't, get me, I don't get you, <laughs> right? Like there's a little bit of like um, attitude that's in there that I, my parents would probably tell you I was born with, right? Like of, of like uh, of that, but I will tell you, it is not like I just sailed through it with no pain. When I left Capella, it took me 18 months to find my next job, mostly because nobody really understood who the hell I was professionally, right? Mm -hmm. Now, some of that was me getting really good at like my brand, right? And I think when I was leaving Capella, that was when this whole idea of personal brand was really starting to enter the consciousness where I understood that like, I didn't just have to have a resume that listed all of my stuff. Like there was no contractual obligation to just list everything that I could craft a resume or a CV that told a story, right? Love that. And like, I could craft a sort of elevator pitch about myself that told the story that I wanted people to hear. Mm -hmm. And through really amazing, like I had friends and strangers, frankly, that became friends, helped me tell that story in, an, in, in a different way. But it took me 18 months to find a job between when I started looking and when I landed the job at Children's. Mm -hmm. And this, the story I tell about landing the marketing job at Children's was that 
part of that story that I learned to tell was that my unique, my only, the thing that I am good at, right? That I'm not going to say nobody else is good at because there's lots of people in this world, but that made me rare mm-hmm. was that I can confidently speak business, marketing, and IT, right? And business and marketing really are the same thing, but I can speak multiple languages, if you will, right? Yes. I had a very strong technical, my dad's a technologist, a longtime technologist. I understand and have comfort in technology, largely because of my time at Capella, right? Everything was digital. And I learned a lot about how, how technology is built and run and architected, right? Mm-hmm. So I speak that, but I speak business. And I can sit in the middle of those two organizations, two sort of voices in an organization and translate. And so sometimes it's like being at the UN, right? Like being a translator between two competing organizations. Although over time, since, since I was telling the story, those parts of the organization have merged for many companies, which is related to what the work I do now, which we can talk about in a minute. But at the time, that was really a rare thing. And so what I learned was to tell the story, not to lie, not to cover up, not to distort, but to be selective in what parts of my story I brought to a conversation so that people could understand where to place me in their like worldview. I think that is so such important advice. I'm going to call it advice to, to give because so many people think that when they're like, so share your story, tell me your story. They start all the way from the beginning, right? you know, and, and, and carry it forward. And, and it's just like, know your audience, right? In that. But what I also heard in that is that you were really spending some time in defining what are the parts of your story thus far that really make you unique, that that make you some that separate you from others. And when you said, you know, this took you 18 months, because you also needed to find the right fit, right? Right. You know, somebody who did get you. Yeah. On that. What are some things that you did specifically that you would say really helped you solidify the story you wanted to tell? Well, there's two things. One is that I treated it like a comedy routine. So if you ever do any research about how comedians prepare their stand-up, and actually, I mean, this is more recent than that, but it was kind of confirmed in the Mrs. Maisel, you know, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel show. There's an episode in one of the first, in in the first season, where she does the same joke in like 17 dresses, right, in a montage, right, over time, Uh and it goes from bombing to having the group, like, riled and laugh, like, the audience riled in laughter, right, over the course of the montage, and there's some peppy music, right, and the dresses, don't forget the dresses, the dresses were fantastic. Right. But she goes through that whole thing. And what was amazing to me in that is that she changes what word she emphasizes in the sentence. She changes one word. She changes where the beats are. And through that very small little change, she evolves it over time to be from a bomb joke to a hit joke. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that painful part I was telling you about how hard it was, right? People who didn't get me, that kind of thing. There were bombs. And then I would change a word. Once I got, you know, once I said, said it in a way that got like a chuckle or an eyebrow raise or a head tilt and a thoughtful conversation, I remembered it. And then I tried it again, but maybe I tried it slightly differently. And so knowing your audience and all of that. So one is that I treated it like a comedy routine. 
that I was coming up with. Now I happen to think humor and joy is a big part of who I am in my own personal brand. So it really was like a comedy routine. I love getting laughter, but like, it wasn't something that I like memorized and went out with. It was an iterative process. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And the second thing in that 18 months was that I took the long view and, and I started to say this earlier and then of course I got distracted because I do that to myself all the time. So it took me 18 months to leave uh, to find the right fit after Capella. And I talked to a recruiter one January morning and I said, look, what I'm looking for is a job that has me with one foot in marketing and one foot in IT because that's where I do my best work. And she laughed at me, (laughs) not necessarily, I mean, mostly in a nice way, a little bit like, okay, Jen, sure. Like a triple good luck to you laugh? (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I think she even said, okay, I'll let you know if I find anything. And a year later, and I'm really not even kidding you, it was a year, the next January, she called me out of the blue and said, you are not going to believe this, but I sat in a client's office this morning and what they said was, what I really need is someone who can sit with one foot in IT and one foot in marketing and does their best work. She's like, so are you interested? And I was like, hell yes. And I think it was like two and a half weeks later, I was, I, I got the job at Children's. Oh my gosh. I love that so much because, you know, when there, there's a, especially in marketing, right? You know, you can do mass marketing, you can yep. do niche marketing and to have the confidence to say something so specific and then put it out there. And yes, it took a year, but then you found like your perfect place for that yeah. moment in time. Yeah. Huge yeah. And part of it was, it was, I got to that message through that comedy routine iteration, right? Yes. And, and, and so I got there through iteration. And when I got there, I realized this is me. Like it felt like a comfy sweater, right? When I put it on, I was like, yes, this is me. And then when I said it, I mean, it was so specific that she was like, okay, needle in a haystack, you know, kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. But I then had the patience to wait for it. Now, again, I do not want to paint the picture that this was all sunshine and flowers. I cried a lot in those 18 months. I gave up at least 17 times and said, screw this. I'll work at Capella till I die. I'll be, you know, I'll be dissatisfied with my job because by that point I had kind of worked my way through things at Capella. The culture had started to shift. There was a lot of growth, which means people are starting to settle into roles that were a little bit more tracked. And that was not what I wanted, right? It was still a wonderful company full of wonderful people, but it wasn't what I needed anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, I gave up 17 times. I cried. I railed. I used a lot of foul language. Like, it was not like it was like sunshine and roses. I just waited patiently by the phone. It was a lot of, like, trial and error. But it also meant that, like, sometimes things just come when they come. Yes. When you, and I I think that it's important to, to share that, right? Because it's never, it's never as clean and crisp as case studies make it sound like, or, you know, somebody's bio or anything like that. But I think that the piece I would love for you to, you know, share with us is what, when you were saying earlier, like it fit me, like it sounded like me, it like you could feel like, yep, one foot in IT and one foot in marketing. That is who I am right now. Like, 
how did you know? What was the difference for you? Because you were trying a lot of things. What for you made you go, that's it? Like, what did it feel like? What did it sound like? What, what did you notice that gave you the sense of, I found it? You know, I mean, as you were saying that, I think it, it, the thing that came in, it felt like a bell ringing, right? Like, you know that, like, it's a sound, but it's also a feeling, right? You can feel the vibration or the hum. And I think in that moment, you just, it just, I don't know. It's like, it's like asking, how do you know that your partner is the one you want to spend the rest of your life with? Like, you, mm. you know, like you can articulate out all of the rational reasons, but it's also a feeling. It's yeah. kind of the same thing where you're like, oh, it, it made me sit up taller. It made me feel better about myself. It made me like smile a little bit, it made me pull my shoulders back, right? Like it just gave me a little bit of, it made me feel like when I put on my favorite pair of shoes, like I just feel a little bit more of a badass, right? Yes. And like that feeling, like I think you have to start to listen when those feelings happen to you, right? Like, I think that's one of the things that uh, I have learned in my 40s is that my body will tell me when I am onto something. My body will also tell me when I am not doing the right thing, when I am making poor choices, right? <laughs> and it how does your body me. act up, Jen? <laughs> well, that's a very personal question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it is the aches and pains. It is, uh, frankly, it's my stomach and my digestive system. It is the, that hum in the back of your head when you're like really in the flow and it's really good versus when you're doing something that feels disjointed and makes you kind of cranky, right? Yes. Like you're, yeah. where you just feel like you're fighting it to do something. And so like I'll even now in, in my current role, sometimes I have to do stuff that I know I don't like, or I'm not as good at, or feels like I am swimming upstream mm -hmm. that I have to do anyways, because it's just me, <laughs> right? That, yeah. That's the joy of entrepreneurship. And I will be like, okay, I know. I know that I'm going to get all tense in my shoulders or that I'm going to probably give myself a headache on this or whatever. So am I going to get up early and just like knock it out, eat the frog, right? The whole Mark Twain thing, right? Am I yeah. just going to get up and eat the frog or am I going to like have some gentle time maybe in the afternoon where I go get my favorite cup of tea and I like kind of pamper myself and I trick myself into doing it, right? Like those <laughs> kinds of things. So part of it is, but it's also been important to listen to sort of the small voices or the small in uh, indications that accumulate over time. And, and really um, for me, like when I was at Optum in my last job, I learned so much in that job. I was, I left there as a VP and I was leading a large team and I had a huge capital budget and I was working on products that had a huge consumer impact, but my body was telling me that was not the right place for me, right? My body was telling me when I pulled into, pulled the car into the parking garage and I could not get out of it. Like I literally could not, like I could not, and motivation has never been my problem, right? Like I am a fine hop out of bed sees the day kind of a person. Mm -hmm. So to sit in my car and have to actually like have a conversation with myself about why I needed to open the car door and put one foot in front of the other to walk into the building. That's a clear indicator. <laughs> in addition to actually having to do that because that was my job and I had obligations, there was a part of me that was like, this is probably not helpful. When you, when you started to realize that, like you're, that you're spending yeah. time in the garage and having a hard time getting out, what did that then kind of kick into overdrive. Like how did that 
sense and feeling make you decide to start your own business? Well, there was a, there was an interim stop in, in, in between because I have been, I've worked for companies since I graduated from grad school. Like, and I have gone, I have been blessed. I mean, knock, I don't have to knock on wood now. I can't fire myself, but like, I had never been laid off. I would, had never been fired. I had never been whatever. I was incredibly lucky, right? I, I had a job. I found a job. I had a job. I found a job. Like mm-hmm. that was my career progression, right? Yeah. So when I started realizing that I sat down and said, okay, is it this role in this company? Is it the company? Like, what do I want? And I realized it was UHG was just way too big for me. It was not my sweet spot from a size perspective and that I liked the work, but I needed a different environment in which to do it because I like the, just the sheer volume of people, projects, initiatives, names, structures, politics, everything was just way too big for me at at UHG. And I was not and my best, I was not doing my best work. Even if like the output was some of my best work, I knew I didn't feel great about it. So I said, okay, I need to do it. I need to find this kind of a role at a smaller company. So I started applying for jobs. And I started realizing within about a couple of weeks that every time I sent hit send on the resume, like through an applicant tracking system or to a friend or whatever. And then immediately have this like pang of regret when I hit send. And the, the thought would flash through my mind. I really hope I don't get this job. Ah, well, you pretty much uh, sealed the deal with those thoughts. (laughs) For those, I was like, you know, I don't think that's super healthy either. Right? Like if at any time you should want a job, it's the moment you send your resume because it's this totally blissful, ignorant spot where they don't know about you and you don't know about them. It is nothing but possibility of greatness. Yeah. And if in that moment I'm having that thought. And so then I really had to sit back and say, okay, so what does this mean? And what I realized was, was that I'd always said I wanted to work for myself or be a consultant, but I lacked a fundamentally like important thing, which was confidence that I had anything meaningful to offer, which was like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) I know. Where's the disconnect? Because we just talked about all the confidence Uh that you Uh have. So what, what was that about? Well, I mean, some of it is ego. And if this company can make me, if, you know, UHG Optum can make me a vice president, then I must be worth something. Somebody else is validating me and giving Mm -hmm. me this title. Mm -hmm. It was being a part of a larger organization who could figure out all of the stuff, right? To just let me do my work. Like I could just show up and be a digital product person and nobody, and, and like, I didn't have to think about anything else. Paycheck would come. I do my work. It's a very simple ecosystem, right? Yeah. Frankly, the thought of me being independent of a name brand company yeah. was like realizing I had worth outside the organization that I just had worth, period, full stop. Mm. Okay. When you're in that not moment. Worth, not worth because, not worth in the context of a company organization. Do you yeah, know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that was, right. That was the disconnect for me. Okay. So I also want to like, when you're in that moment and you're realizing that you don't want to be there, you also don't want to be working for another company, but you're still wrestling with uh, gathering yourself worth that you really, you know, you can stand on your own. What was at risk for you? Like what felt super kind of scary, risky in that period of time? There was kind of a spectrum of things. And I had really, really great women in my life who gave me 
like a verbal slap in the face. Like you're insane. <laughs> right. Yay. Like it was, it was, not, they were kind slaps in the faces, but they were like the equivalent of taking someone by the shoulders and shaking them. Right. So here's one part of it was I had never experienced not getting a paycheck every two weeks. Never. They just came. Open up my bank account. Look at, there's more money in it. Right. And I know that I worked hard for that money. I know that. I know that they didn't just come. I mean, intellectually, of course, I know that. But the idea that I was just going to like walk away from that and like have to do the hustle. Right. (laughs) And I said to my friend over breakfast one day, over pancakes at Hazel's. Great place. I know. Right. I said, what if, what if I lose my house? Hmm. What if I lose my house? What if I can't pay my mortgage? Now, you know, let's just pause for a moment and say, I have a spouse who has a good job, who, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I, in my mind, I was like, what if we both lose our jobs? What if I can't succeed? Oh, yeah. You just went to the fatalist but, side totally. of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> what she said to me is she said, well, first of all, don't you think you might see that coming? <laughs> she's, that, like, is that it, like, is it, she's like, I'm not in your bank account, but I have to think you have like a little bit of money, right? Like, what, don't you think you would see that coming? And I said, well, yeah. And she said, and don't you think before you got to that point, you would go get a job? And I paused and she said, and I'm not talking like a VP of digital job, which you could easily go out and get. I'm talking like Starbucks, Barnes and Noble, you know, the gap. She's like, just a job, not your job, not the job, not the title, not the salary, just a job that would make ends meet. Don't you think you could probably pull that off? And I was like, well, yeah. And she's like, so, you know, what's the problem? <laughs> right? Like she just said, and, 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 and that's not to say that the Gap and the Barnes and Noble and Starbucks are bad jobs. She's just saying like, you seem to think that there is a very narrow possibility of how you might earn money. It's either, you know, entrepreneurship, or a job that there's six of in the Twin Cities, right? Yeah. That's really scary. She's like, that's not, that's not right. She's like, think about all of the things that are around that all the way out to hourly work that could help you pay your mortgage. Right. Yeah, there's pay. lots of steps in between. But right. we tend to... Go straight to that, right? Yep. Yeah, one, one end to the other. Right. So that was one slap in the face. And the other one was that, and and when she was done with that, I went, oh, yeah, that's right. That's totally right. And the other was, I was at a women's networking event where we were talking about, it was a small group. And so it was lots of discussion. And I shared that I was planning on doing this. And I shared that I was on the particularly low note day of like, I don't think I can pull this off. And I just said, I don't know, some days I just wonder who in the hell is going to hire me. And this woman who's sitting across the table, there's like 20 of us, slams her hand down on the table. Who And I knew, I knew this woman casually. By no means did I know her well, but she slams her hand down on the table and she said, I am sorry, but what? And I said, I really, I just like, who in the hell would hire me? And she just looked at me and she said, who in their right mind wouldn't hire you? And I just went, oh, well, right. Who wouldn't hire me, right? I have all this experience and I know how to do things and I know how to figure things out and I have this high EQ and I do, like, I know who I am, but I needed someone to just be like, you know, kind of across the face and be like, here, I'm sorry, but no, just no. And so there was, I needed some external validation Mm -hmm. and to get out of my own head. Yes. Because that's not a good place to be. 
most days, <laughs> right? Like you need well, sometimes to be able to triangulate. Okay, I think this is true. I'm afraid this is true. Can someone help me figure out where the truth line is, right? Right, yeah. And to just kind of expose the limiting stories that you're telling yourself, the, the stories that aren't really, you know, fact-based or anything. Yeah. They're fear-based, but they're not fact-based. And so once you got that external validation, which is very true, and we do need that. We do yeah. need that when we're not, when we aren't quite there ourselves. Then when you started looking at the prospect of making that leap, to, yep. to start your own business. How did that then start to go from, boy, that feels too big, too risky, to taking some comfort in it and being able to get yourself to right. move forward? Right, because that external validation only can serve for so long. At some point, it's got to come inside, right? And you have right. to be able to drive it. And that's the thing about entrepreneurship is that we all need that extra, that external validation. But at a certain point, you know, in the wee small hours, you got to believe it yourself. You cannot right. just rely on the external. And so part of it was just breaking it down. There was another, you know, I read, so, I read so many books, self-help books during this time. Uh, some were great. Some were trash. More were trash than great, to be honest with you. But like, <laughs> I took a little nugget from all of them. But one of these things, one of these self-help books that I read helped me realize that one of the gifts I have like when I look back on my whole career and that whole portfolio thing that we talked about, right? Yes. Where those weren't like, those weren't jobs that were teed up for me and I walked in and was just great at them to start with, right? They were either problems, unknown spaces, teams, teams or work that had been ignored or no one had ever taken it on before. They were messy and I didn't know anything about them. And I had to go in, learn, figure it out apply like my intellect and my experience up to that point, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to do the next thing. And I always did that. Now I failed at some stuff and I got some stuff wrong. And then I figured out what I got wrong and I tried it again. Mm -hmm. And so what I started to say to myself is for 20 some odd years, I have shown up to my work every day, willing to learn something new and try it and figure out if it works or not, and then try the next thing. This is no different. This is no different. So you could actually see a pattern that was similar. You'd be doing it in a different environment. Totally. But what gave you confidence is you, you could actually see that you'd already been doing a lot of those things. Right, right. And so the, another thing a friend of mine taught me to do is to put, like as soon as something happens that gives you kind of that queasy feeling, right? That again, that visceral feeling of like, oh God, oh, I, I don't want to look directly at that because I'm going to have to admit I don't know how to do that, mm -hmm. was to have a list of things that say, things I don't know how to do today, but will in six months. Yes. And then to write it down and write a date and then not worry about it. So like I had never written a proposal before. And I can't tell you how long I was stuck on that when I was getting ready to go out on my own. I was like, oh, but I don't know how to write a proposal. <laughs> and then one day I realized, well, you know, I've probably read a thousand proposals from consultants over the course of my career because I've hired consultants. I've hired consultants like me. I know what makes me sit up and say, oh, this is a great scope of work versus this is they don't understand the work. Yeah. So can we turn that around to me knowing how to write a good one? I absolutely can. Right. But there's a ton of those things that I put on that list and then I would, you know, have some emotional distance from it and then realize I was being ridiculous and that I would just dig in and learn it and go and do, right? Yeah. There's like hardly anything. And I think this is such a great 
point that you're highlighting is when we stop down and really think about it and we try not to make it so black and white, like an absolute exact, you know, same match, you can find parallels that fit the situation almost any time. And if you really don't, like if you really truly don't know how to do something, 99% of the time, you're going to know somebody who does. Right. right. Like it doesn't even have well, to come from you. That is, and that is an excellent point, Michael. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things that has been brought me the greatest joy in launching this business is the fact that people at every turn have been willing to help me. They will send me their templates. They will refer me to their lawyer. They will look over a proposal for me. They will problem solve with me. They will introduce me to people. Like, I mean, it was, there was a point where I felt like it was an embarrassment of riches, people falling over themselves to help me. Now, part of that is I believe that I have tended a network of really exceptional people over the years and that I have some, it's not, it didn't just happen to me. It's not accidental that I've surrounded myself with those people, but that they showed up day after day like in little tiny ways that maybe took five or 10 minutes out of their day, but like saved me 17 hours. Like, I don't understand what lucky star I was born under to be that fortunate, right? Of people willing to help me. Now, there were also lots of people who ignored my emails and that's okay. Cause that's where they were in their time. Right. Yeah. But like, I asked people straight out cause I had no idea what to bill for example, what my billable mm-hmm. hours should be. So I just called people up and was like, if you're comfortable telling me, would you? And they did, like in droves, you know, and they just shared it. And they said, well, sometimes I build this and sometimes I build this and this is how I decide. And I was just like, I was just blown away. Now, again, that is built on lots, a long relationship of trust with a lot of these people. And I didn't just call up perfect strangers, but it was kind of embarrassing how great people were. Yes. Well, I think that's also, we have to acknowledge that that's something like you're saying that you fostered. So this isn't just, you know, a day one type of thing. How good at asking for help were you prior to launching your business versus this stage that you just described? I've always been good at it. I will. I've always been the person that's like, I'm going to ask the stupid question in the room. (laughs) Right. Mostly because at some point I got advice from a a much more senior woman that I was, it was happened right after I made director at Capella and one of our senior VPs on the academic side. So she was a Dean pulled me aside and and said, you don't talk in these meetings. What is your problem? And I'm almost positive. That was the direct quote, right? What's your problem? Like we put you in this role so that you could like be smart and help us be smarter. And you can't show up at these meetings and not talk. And I'm like, well, cause I don't know what's going on. And I don't know, maybe I don't want to ask a stupid question. And she was just like, what, what stupid questions did you have in that meeting? And I listed off three of them and she goes, well, I would have wanted the answers to all of those. And I didn't even think to ask them. So if you don't ask them, then no one will, and we'll all be dumber for it. Right. Mm. And so, so now certainly some of the things I was asking were much more like personal to me, but I also now turn around and give the advice that I got from others. And like, you know, it all becomes a part of this kind of fabric. And so I am the first one to be like, okay, I have a dumb question. And that, remember I said humor and joy being big values for me. I am totally willing to be the like, 
I mean, I don't always say dumb question. I pick my moments where I use that phrasing, but sometimes I say, you know, I might not be understanding exactly what's being talked about here. So just make sure that I have the right context. Can I just ask for clarity on this or whatever? And let me tell you as a consultant, that is usually with, I don't understand what's going on. I used to think it was because I was dumb. And now I understand if I don't understand what's going on, it's because they're obfuscating something. There's something that's not right. And so now when I don't understand what's going on, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm from the outside. I'm new here. Can you explain that to me? And people are then like, oh, I'm so glad you asked that. And then here comes all the answers. And that's how you start to uncover the good stuff. I think a lot of that is that like, I just have no, I don't have any fear of looking dumb anymore because it actually has served me way better to be the, hey, I'm new, I'm the new guy. Uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. Can someone explain it? And then that's usually where you get to the good stuff. Yeah, and it's such a great, it's such a great tip too, Jen, because what you were saying earlier when you're like, okay, well, so I didn't ask those questions. I thought they were kind of personal to me, maybe to my situation, but like what the senior woman was telling you, we forget sometimes we think we get so in our head and we think we're the only ones thinking this, we're the only ones going through this, but when we share it, like 9.8 times out of 10 other people are thinking it or yes. feeling it or going yes. through the same thing too. So come yes. on, everybody. Let's well, and that put it out there. Too, when I was asking for help on some of the more logistical parts of starting my business and I would say, hey, I need some help in this area. And I'd reach out to three or four people. A couple of people had answers for me and a couple of people said, oh my God, would you share what you find out? Because I'm struggling with that too. And I'd be like, yep, no problem. Here's what I learned go ahead and take it and run with it. Right. Like yeah. it was, it was really, really that kind of openness. I mean, that's when I say falling all over themselves, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, let's get in and let's talk about this. Right. Not that they all just gave me answers and walked away. It was a willingness to sort of get in there and figure it out with me. That was totally mind blowing. Yeah. That, that is fantastic. I'm curious because you did say like, this is serving you well, asking the questions, being the new person in the room. What are some of the things that were like, when you're going in and you're working with a company around digital transformation, which feels really big, really huge, really all encompassing, <laughs> yep. you know, what are some of the consistent themes, regardless of who you're working with, that you, you would say companies have to get really good at this in order to do transformation well? Well, I mean... That last sentence is a little overwhelming, so I'm gonna not answer it, and then I'm gonna come back around to it. So what I would say is the companies that I work with tend to be, I think, generally speaking, digital transformation is, everyone's like, yeah, I got it. I have to do, do my business in the context of a digital world. And that's everything from healthcare moving to digital healthcare, online, telehealth, all of that, to you know, sort of uh, even the more, physical world product kind of places saying, yeah, we understand that maybe digital isn't going to change how I build houses, right? Because that's still something I have to build in the physical world. But how I interact with my customers, how I showcase my work, how I reach new people, how I serve my clients has to be done in the context of a digital space. So while I still have to show up and frame a house and insulate a house and side a house and, you know, put flooring in and all of and kitchens, that may not change because of technology, although I will tell you that also is changing because of technology and they know that full well, but how they interact with the rest of the world also has to change. And that, that the rest of it is the part where I think most 
companies are across the spectrum. So they know that they have to have a, you know, companies know they have to have a good website and they have to know that they can, you know, market to their target audience and they're using technology for, for those things to varying degrees of success. But what they're starting to realize is that the rest of their business has to change too. How their teams work have to change. How finance and HR operates. Like all of those things that seem like not digital are actually digital. There is actually technology components to all of that work. Mm -hmm. And so what I typically do with clients is meet them when they're in that realization and it's the thousand yard stare of, oh shit, <laughs> excuse me. But yeah. we thought we were going, we thought we were done with this because we put in the, you know, we have the fancy new website and we have the hot CRM and we're doing the marketing automation. And we totally miss the fact that there's like, that that's like the tip of the iceberg. And now we are in it for, you know, the long haul and the realization that digital transformation is never going to be done. It's an ongoing commitment. And usually that point where they are like, oh God, what are we going to do? That's where I come in, where I come in and I'm like, all right, it's going to be fine. And we look at things like teams and team structures and processes and frameworks for how to do, how to get your people to show up and be empowered to make the best decisions for the company, whether that is what does the website need to do that it's not doing today to how do we want our financial systems to operate to, you know, every, you know, what is our, IVR system look like in the call center and everything in between and how that all starts to connect up. And that's really like, that's the meat of digital transformation. I actually don't want to, I shouldn't say this on, on a podcast, but like companies that are like just figuring out or just coming to me and saying, we need a new website. That's not digital transformation. It's this big, like existential crisis that they get in when they realize that this is bigger than they thought it was. Mm -hmm. That's really the good stuff for me. Yeah. And how has really moving largely to remote working, how has that exacerbated the, uh, <laughs> dis the discovery and the dismay? Well, I mean, the, I will say it's probably less about the remote working and more just about the state of business and the economy in, in 2020 with COVID is this idea that there's, there's a little bit, you know how you and I have been like cleaning up closets over the last six months, right? And we're like, oh, that, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't organized the pantry since I moved in 10 years ago. I've just been throwing shit into it, right? Like that kind of feeling. Business are, businesses are going through the same thing. Companies are going through the same thing where they're like, all right, look, we're probably not going to push into this new market in 2021 the way that we originally thought. We're not going to necessarily take this huge undertaking, huge risky undertaking that we were going to take. Maybe we're just going to put that on the back burner. But what we really want to do is make sure that we have like shored up our foundation. We've really like, we've got the right scaffolding around the right things. And we have teams that we're not fully utilizing. Or we know we've had some disconnect between our technical and business teams. And that's bubbling up to the surface in new ways because we can't ignore it anymore because we're all mm -hmm. home together all the time. Right. <laughs> I can't that's ignore the pantry anymore. Right. And so like, that's the moment where they start to go, okay, if we're not going to undertake this, we're going to look in our own closet and figure out what to clean up here because we want to be ready when the economy pivots to like ride the rails, right? Like we yes. want to be able to go yes. and we know we are not in the right place to do it. And so that's when they're coming to terms with sort of that existential crisis that maybe they've been ignoring for a while because they're moving too fast. They're too focused on something else. We'll get to it eventually. 
it's not that big of a deal, we'll just make do. We'll hire more people, we'll take more of it offshore, whatever, right? And now it's this realization that I wanna get as much juice from the squeeze from the teams that I have and the systems I have and the products we have, and we're not there and we need to get there. Yeah, So, and ultimately they will be more efficient Totally. They'll be better for it, right? In the long run, because the closets will be clean, right? Yeah. They're ready to go. So the business world is Marie Kondoing. Basically. A little bit, yeah. 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 I love yeah. that. <laughs> and when you start thinking about how, you know, this preparedness, this readiness, how is that going to carry through into 2021? Like if you were putting out your, your crystal ball, or your, you know, your magic eight ball, your magic yeah. eight ball, Jen. Yep. <laughs> um, what are, what are you predicting or are the trends you're going to be seeing for 2021 around what businesses are doing with digital transformation? You know, I think more and more are going to come to that realization. I think there is, there has been a little bit of wishful thinking that like, the calendar will turn on 2020, right? On January 1st, and that there'll be a little bit of um, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, we'll all be better, everything will be fine. I mean, some of that is just basic, like sanity preservation, right? Of like really not recognizing, not really wanting to wrap your brain around the fact that we are likely in this for at least the next 18 months, right? One way or another, we'll either, I mean, I'm hoping we're coming out of it in 18 months, but we're gonna, until there's a vaccine, until people, until companies are, you know, actually, able to decide whether or not they want workers to come back into buildings until the economy is stable enough that people feel confident in making those big investments in new market launches or whatever. Like that's not going to happen on January 1st. And so I do think that there are going to be, I'm not even going to say latecomers because six months is not that long for a company to sort of make the realization that what they really need to do is clean out their own closets. I think in the first half of the year, I expect my demand to still be very strong because Mm -hmm. I think lots of companies are going to be having that, those thousand yard stare, holy shit moments that they're going to have to like figure this out and that this is the time to make that investment, not to wait. And so I do think that like there will be plenty of closets to be cleaned for a while. And I think companies are probably going to start discovering closets that they didn't even know they had, right? Like they're going to, whether or not it's product, it might be other parts, it may be talent management strategies, it might be, you know, other things that are outside my direct area. But I think this idea of looking inward Mm -hmm. for like, what can we do better to be healthier for when this turns around? I think that's, I think the first six months were about the companies that um, were under existential threat, right? Because their entire business is in person and they can't operate in a, in a COVID environment. Those companies have either come out of it or they've closed. The other ones that just went into hunker down mode now are going to be like, all right, well, we've been hunkered down for six months. I think we got to start to like make some decisions here. And I think those are the ones that are going to start to realize this into 2021. Yeah. I loved what you said too, about looking inward and really figuring out how to be better. That is not only for businesses, that's for individuals. And this is the time to really do that inner work too and find out, you know, what is it that really means something to you? Who is it that you want to be in this next season? And yep. what, what, are, what are you going to have to stop doing? What are you going to have to do differently in order to become that? So that's a great universal uh, prediction. 
Yeah. Yeah. That will shift. I'm sure <laughs> everything. Right. Um, okay. So I just have one last question for you because you are a big problem solver. Uh, Jen, what's one big problem in any scope of life? I mean, business, personal, yeah. professional, global, whatever, however you want to look at it. What's one big problem that you would love to solve? Well, okay, so I'm going to answer this in the context of whether a really big problem that I would like to see solved. I'm not sure I am alone. I know I am not alone the one to solve it, but I would hope that I can be a part of it. So one of the things that I've been really passionate about in my career is the idea of women in leadership roles. How do we get more women in more roles of leadership and power just in society in general? And that is in business and in politics and everything else like that. And I've been involved in, you know, thought leadership and activism and things like that. And one of the things this last year has really pointed out to me is that I need to be much more explicitly inclusive in that to say that it's not just white women, that it is women of color and um, women who identify as women and really the whole spectrum there because equity and access and support and compensation and everything is so tied up and so different, right? There's not one problem. It is a very intersectional problem. And one of the things I'm most worried about in, in our current environment is how many women are being forced out of the, pushed out of the workforce because of just circumstances of COVID, kids at home, caring for parents, you know, that a lot of the job losses that we've seen in the last year are um, over-indexed for women and women of color, right? In terms of service workers and things like that. And that we are going to push back the very slow pace of change and and achievement where you know we've been trying to do to close those gaps in in equity and and access are going to be pushed back decades and i'm sick about that and so like i really really want to be a part of that solution even if it's just bringing awareness to it but it is a big nasty gnarly problem that uh, we have got to fix because i don't believe our democracy, our economy, our intellectual sort of achievement as a human race is possible unless we can put more women at the right seats of power and decision making. Period. Amen. Amen. I love it. You're absolutely right. I am going to include two articles in our notes from this podcast because Bloomberg just came out with the article talking about this is going to be the first female recession. Mm-hmm. And then there's another article that just came out that I saw that talks about how women leaders are handling the uh, coronavirus and what their leadership has resulted in that's different from other leaders around the world. And I think that speaks exactly to what you just said. And it is. It's an important movement to, yes. to be part of. So I'm, I am with you on that. Jen, I thank you so much for being part of this podcast. I could just continue this conversation for <laughs> hours with you. I know. <laughs> Me too. Me just, too. I feel like we just did a little tip of the iceberg, but I also know that you are a great thought leader and you share your viewpoints and your knowledge pretty regularly. So how can people find you and follow you? You know, the best place is probably LinkedIn because I don't do anything anywhere that I don't also do on LinkedIn. So that's, if you only do one thing, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Jen Gelbman Swanson, Gelbman being my maiden name, but I'm the Jen Swanson that is laughing at a desk. 
So short hair, glasses, and laughing, like that's the, that's me. So if you see that picture, look for me. It so, is, it's a happy photo. <laughs> that's right. So it's, uh, when I, I, when I got married and I gave up my very unique German maiden name for a very generic Swedish name, it made me happy on a number of levels, but I didn't quite realize how much harder that would make me to find on social media. <laughs> so I had to add that. I also have a website, jenswanson.net. Um, if anyone's interested in learning more about the digital transformation work that I do, that's another great place to go. But again, you can find me via LinkedIn if that's the only thing you remember. Right. And Jen Swanson is S-O-N. It is. Yeah. Like the TV dinner, they say. There you go. <laughs> well, Jen, thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing to follow you and hearing all the great work that you are doing. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, are you operating at the level that you want to be? You know, research shows that incorporating even one daily habit to support your mind, health, and output can raise your overall satisfaction in life. I took the themes of what the world's highest performers do consistently to excel, and I compiled it into one easy-to-read document for you called The Best of Daily Rituals. It's all yours, and it is free. There are over 20 different rituals for you to choose from. And I suggest that you just select one or two and put it into practice for the next 30 days and see what changes occur. Find the download in today's show notes, or you can go to michaelwkifkart.com. 